Hey, faithful, welcome to We've Got War, the Daily Planet Productions podcast series, where we expertly dissect and discuss war while those prophecies return to the world of parahumans. My name is Reverend Matt Freeman, and I am your pastor today. And this is our newly enslaved, uh, invited congregant, Scott Daly. Scott, I hear you've been having some trouble with your crops. Y- yes, the soil here is very poor, and I have no knowledge of farming. I- I'll work it out, though that can't be can't be that hard, right? <laughs> it was so creepy, Matt. I can't I can't get over it. That was so creepy. Thank you. Was not expecting that. Um, yes, as you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of creepy cultish settlements, superhero team signs, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this no- novel. And this week, we are resuming our live read and discussion. We are all caught up, and we're tackling the next three chapters in Arc 4 Shade, chapter 4.a, 4.4 and 4.5, Matt. Yeah, yeah, this is cool. We get to really drill down and focus like we've been talking about. Um, going to spend quite a lot of time talking about these three chapters, and uh, I think they, they really do merit that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I really enjoyed this interlude a lot, and I, um, I said this before to some people in the Discord, but one of the things I'm really enjoying about, specifically in these three chapters... Um, or this this arc as a whole is how the information about these uh, these characters in the misfit toys is being doled out to us how we're learning more about them in a very naturalistic kind of way it's not like we're having a chapter that focuses on Kenzie and then a chapter that focuses on rain it's just kind of things are happening conflicts are coming up and therefore uh, we're learning about them in, in a natural kind of way yeah, particularly, I feel like Rain, you know, obviously shines through a lot here because we finally get an interview from him, uh, interlude rather. And um, like you said, it's it's a natural progression of us learning more about this character. Um, and it all feels of a piece with what we already know of him. Right. Even, even though we had very different impressions about him beforehand. Yeah, and it's all very much... You know, there's there's the old adage of of storytelling that you should always be going for a therefore or a but um, yeah. instead of a and then. And this is very much we're, we're we're having to hit these these beats. We're having to hit these moments where we are exploring the background of some of these characters um, and and learning more about them in troubling ways. And but we're not doing it. And then and then it's Kenzie's turn and then it's Rain's turn. It's all this is passing through in a natural kind of way. And I appreciated that. Yeah, me too. Um, all right, Scott, you want to, let's, let's talk about our, our favorite section. We didn't have Ward. (laughs) All right. Um, so Scott, um, I guess no, no one in the world except Wildbow knows this, but apparently there are two Alice books. There's Alice's adventures in Wonderland. And then there's through the looking glass. And these are two separate books. I think more people than just you knew than just Wildbow knew that. I mean, I think um, you might be the only one that did not. Um, I well, anyway, regardless of that. <laughs> uh, so, so the Queen of Hearts is the crazy one in Wonderland. She's a playing card, and the Red Queen is a chess piece, and she's the one who challenges Alice to make it all the way to the other end of the chessboard uh, in in um, through the Looking Glass. 
And Wikipedia confirms she is often confused with the Queen of Hearts from the previous book, although the two are very different. And uh, Lewis Carroll says, I picture to myself the Queen of Hearts as a sort of embodiment of ungovernable, ungovernable passion, a blind and aimless fury. The Red Queen I pictured as a fury, but of another type. Her passion must be cold and calm. She must be formal and strict, yet not unkindly, pedantic to the 10th degree, the concentrated essence of all governesses, which that's interesting because by calling uh, Panacea the queen of uh, the, the Red Queen, that's a highly different connotation than the, the Queen of Hearts. Um, so my, my brain went to the wrong place. So I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad to have been corrected on that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that one that was pointed out to us by, uh, by Wild Bo himself. Correct. So yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. We yeah. didn't. We didn't have Ward. No. No. We didn't have our our literature in general. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I have never read through the Looking Glass, but I I did know it existed. So. Yeah. Point for me. Well. Yeah. Good for you, Scott. <laughs> um. All right. So now, yeah, we let's move on to some some community uh community spotlight on on some comments that people were making last week in the Reddit threads and, and elsewhere. Um, so yeah, our discussion question from last week was, what do you think of hollow point? Does this represent a unique new kind of cape organization or just more of the same? And, and we got, uh, some answers. We got um, a bunch of answers like all over the place. Uh, a lot of different takes on this place, some more hopeful and optimistic and some not so much. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Um, it looks like executioner 404, um, basically saying that it seems like it's going to be a stepping stone for the plot and it's going to get torn apart very quickly. Not going to, not going to last long. Yeah. What did you think about that one? Um, I, I think I, I absolutely agree that we're not going to spend the entire book in hollow point. Um, but I, I do, I do see this as a, a demonstration of this new world and trying different and second chances and trying to start over and what happens to this place I think is very important to what the book is trying to say about these ideas of second chances so uh, the the fate of hollow point I feel like is important narratively but also important thematically yeah that's a good point yeah um I don't even really have anything to add to that yeah it's it's gonna it, it it kind of reminds me of how worm and and also twig they sort of have chunks of the story you know we we sort of refer to them as like the echidna part even though that was several arcs right um and i feel like hollow point is important enough to deserve like a few arcs devoted to it maybe although i wouldn't be disappointed if it you know only lasted one arc um Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's really hard to it's really hard to predict things because i feel like there's a lot of uh mystery under the surface of hollow point that's being doled out slowly so that that makes me suspect that it's going to be it's going to have some staying power. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the big things I think these three chapters did is showed us that the uh, the quiet, calm and safety of hollow point that that we observed in last week's session is, is kind of definitely not the whole story. Um, there are elements in this place. There are people in this place that. As much as this is one cohesive unit, they claim we see two people deliberately break orders. So um, this place is not as well controlled. And a lot of these uh, responses reflect that that kind of yeah. sentiment. Um, yeah. So, so the next person calming respirator 
uh, I, I like this this point that Hollow Point is being set up as a direct sort of villain mirror of the wardens, and and that, that kind of makes sense. Like the the wardens are, are sort of trying to set themselves up as almost being hegemonic over all the other cape organizations, even mm-hmm. though it's less obvious. Um, and and we kind of see the same thing here, where while the, the leadership of you know, and this I'm sort of paraphrasing, calling respirator here, but the, the leadership of Hollow Point is not is not really that strong, but they have managed to bring together this coalition of right. different sort of kinds of villains. Yeah, and there's uh, I think Calming Respirator makes a good point here that there's seemingly this uh, polar pull where um, we have a lot of the heroes aggregating under the Warden's umbrella, and now we're seeing a lot of the villains start to aggregate under this Hollow Point banner, and that. Uh, from what we know of capes, that that does not have a a hopeful outlook when you start concentrating high amounts of superpowered people in one place. Yeah, right. That that's an interesting thing to point out. Like we've even even in the the big like Battle of Brockton Bay, I'm not sure how many total capes that was, but I sort of feel like we're approaching those numbers if we haven't already passed them mm-hmm. uh, in the Hollow Point area. Yeah. Uh, so the next person, uh, Enamored, or Enamored. I think it's Enamored. That's enamored. how I would say it. That's that, that would be the clever <laughs> way to do it. Um, is is pointing out that yeah, it's it's the biggest hive of scum and villainy that that's existed after Gold Morning. Um, yeah, their main point was I think that that Tattletail doesn't seem to have faith in this organization at all, and they're in their going concern as a as a a place as a group and um and while it was a new a new kind of thing it's kind of doomed to failure and i i think i think tattletale has a point there and i think enamored has a point there that um like there's an inherent unbalance in this structure yeah yeah i'm reminded of that something awful comment to the effect that tattletale might even be trying to undermine them um, right. I'm not, but we're just still not too sure yeah. about that, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then Venom Rex sees hollow point as a dangerous weed that must be snuffed out quickly. Um, basically that, that it's something that could potentially get, get like get a foothold and Gimmel doesn't really have the like infrastructure to root it out. And, and then it sort of would become like a permanent fixture. So, uh, yeah, they compared uh, it to a pirate bay. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's a safe haven for criminals that only kind of spirals in power there. And the more the safer it is for criminals, the more criminals are going to be there, the more crimes will be committed, and the more aggregate of wealth and power in that one area. And that can only end poorly. Yeah, that's. I think that's an interesting contrast. The next comment from Moga Soffer, um, which is basically that, that it doesn't seem to be that much better or that much worse than than any other place because you've got all these villains but um there's no like obvious monstrosity happening that we've seen like there's we haven't seen any terrible things happening what we know that it's sort of a protection racket but um i think i think taylor would argue that you know hey (laughs) (laughs) at least at least there's security right right Um, right um yeah so like at least this way i mean and i think I think 
it was probably Prancer that made this case in the first place. Like, hey, it's actually better to have itiner- itinerant villains sort of in one place where they have resources and a safe haven rather than having those same itinerant villains scattered all over the world trying to steal their way through life yeah. all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's at least it's in like, yeah, it's, it's much easier to track one place than it is a hundred, but yeah, it is also much easier, much harder to get rid of uh, a structure that's cemented itself in this place as much as it has. If, if you decide that you want to in the future. Yeah. Reminds me of that block of buildings in Hong Kong that just has no legal system at all. And yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. it, I, uh, I forget the name of that, but if you're near a computer, it's worth Googling. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely one of the possible future outcomes for an area like this that, uh, eventually they would just gather so much internal strength within their structure that they're basically impenetrable from any kind of outside government or force or law. Or, yeah, I mean, we, yeah. Or it'll just collapse on itself. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's very, very fun to, to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So awesome toast basically says that they don't, they don't really seem like they're a cohesive unit and they certainly don't seem like they will remain a cohesive unit for long that they're, they're sort of splintered into too many clicks already. And, and since parahumans live and breed conflict, uh, they don't see this lasting very long, which I think this reading kind of, uh, this week's reading rather kind of supports that theory. Um, the fact that the first major conflict that has occurred in hollow point is, uh, houndstooth and his group walking in there and already you see the group splintering and two people not listening to the orders that they're given and going off and doing their own thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that seems to indicate that that there is a, a central weakness at the core of this organization that um, especially as uh, the influence of the Misfit Toys starts to ramp up will probably not hold together. But the question is, how will they lash out to prevent that thing from falling Um you push people against a wall and they're going to have to try to get through you. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, definitely. All right. So I think that was all the comments that we, that we picked out from yeah. Reddit and various other places. It's a great, um, great response to that question. Um, I like yeah. this, this segment and this is something we're going to keep doing each week because I think it's fun. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there was another kind of general comment that, that I actually responded to in, in the thread. Um, but uh, we just wanted it to mention uh, the chairman Trump. Uh, sorry, no, the chairman. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Trump is the flare. Yes, I, I just copy pasted that from Reddit. Yeah. So Trump is his flare. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this this person is basically saying um, it's they're sort of questioning the fact that we take such a uh, tremendously positive attitude towards Wildbow and, and his works. Um, not that, not that he's not great, but could, like, couldn't we stand to be more critical, point out inconsistencies, point out things that didn't work quite so well, point out mistakes, uh, point out places where editing is needed. Um, I think, first of all, I think we do do that a little bit, but kind of like I said in the thread, um, uh, like in terms of like sentence by sentence things, there, the fact is that this is being written in such a way that I, I don't think there's a lot of value in like pointing out that like a sentence could have been written better. You know, it's like, okay, right. That's that as I, as I wrote, like that's, that's like pointing out 
one musical misnote in like a two hour symphony. It's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, good, good for you for noticing it. But right. what was the point? And and I think our general stance on this whole thing has always been, yeah, if something, if, if we honestly think something just, just does not work, then yeah, that's when we're going to point it out. But um, I'm not interested in nitpicking. I'm not interested in that kind of, uh, that kind of criticism and comment on something, especially as it is being written. Um, the, the, the chairman's, the thing that, that prompted them to say this was the fact that last week we talked about how the fact that our protagonist was internally silent through most of those chapters that that victoria did not have an internal monologue was not reacting internally to those things and we took this to mean this was an intentional move to show something about victoria rather than this was just something that wild Bo did or did not do um and 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 i think he has a point that this could just have been um something that was was missed or not focused on in the text but one we don't know that for sure and as long as as long as I have an in-world reason for why I think something works, that's um, that makes sense to me and makes sense as far as our characters and how they act. Um, I I am going to err towards the optimistic take, you know, like even if it's not true, like even if this was just even if this just was a mess up or something like that, um, I'm going to err to the side that that makes sense for the, the story world. And that's just what that's just what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that works, that works better for what we're doing now anyway, because like it it would be, it would be kind of, um, ridiculous if, if we were constantly like pointing out things we thought were mistakes only for them to be like, like to turn out to be (laughs) intentional and just be like, Oh yeah, don't know what we're doing here. So, and and actually I think chapter 4.4 kind of proves out what we were talking about, um, in that, we suddenly the events of of those last chapters are gone and the first thing victoria is doing is suddenly being much more self-aware and much more in her head than she was during that whole time and it's because she is now in a place of of where the mission has kind of faded away she's sitting on a train bored and these thoughts kind of creep back in right exactly yeah but we will get to that pretty quick yeah yeah sorry i jumped i jumped ahead a bit yeah but i think i think all that that being said um i i want this to be positive and I want to everything like writing is intentional. And even, even when writing is not like consciously intentional, there's still a lot of, a whole lot of subconscious stuff going on when you write something. So if we pick up on something that, and and find a, a way for it to make sense as an intentional conscious or subconscious thing within the story, then that's what, that's what we're going to do. So. Yep. I agree. Uh, okay. Uh, did you have any other uh, comments you wanted to make before we get into the chapter? Um, there was a, just a couple threads uh, I wanted to point out in the subreddit. There was the most unpopular opinion thread this week, which got very heated as something <laughs> like that, which will have unpopular opinions will do. But I think that was really a great way of like showing some of the differences in how people interpret Worm. And I think it's always fun to go in and read those things, even if I don't agree with what everyone's saying. Um, when the arguments are well thought out and well explained. Um, I, I enjoy seeing those things. I think that one of the most heated thing was, was around Saint, of course, because whether Saint was right or wrong is, is a very contentious thing within this community. And um, I was worried about that thread when it first appeared. And I think the, the conversation overall turned out uh, pretty good. So check that one out if you haven't already. Yeah. I, I like that thread too. Okay. All right. Let's move in chapter 
4.a, which is a rare mid-arc interlude. Yeah. Exciting. And I wanted to, before we get into it proper, I wanted to take a minute to talk about the idea of mid-arc interludes and, and why... This one, I think, in particular, works really well, where I know some there have been complaints in the past about ones that have not worked as well. Um, but did you did you like how this one was structurally placed? Yeah, I absolutely did. Um, I kind of think I know what what you're going to say, but but like my general sense is the only time when I like am not happy to see a mid arc interlude is when you leave the main character's plot on like a cliffhanger where. You're just desperate to know what the next thing is that happens. And that not only does that not happen here, but this this is a very satisfying um, segue from the main character's plot into the interlude character's point of view. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right, because it, it is it is very well done in that we leave the last chapter with this like what what is going on with rain? And then the book says, oh, well, let me segue to the explanation of what is going on with rain and, and let, let's, let's, let's catch you up. And yep. I think that works very well. And it, like the first three chapters and, and I talked, I think we talked about this last week that it was kind of lucky that the first time we had to do just three chapters live, these three chapters, while they were not a complete arc um, of a story, they felt like a good place to start and stop. Like we went in, we learned a little bit about our characters and then we left it at a very natural kind of cliffhanger. And I think the arc, the the interlude here is, is positioned in a place where it picks up on that right away and and helps understand the things we learned and then helps define things going in the next two chapters going forward. Uh, I think this was fantastically well placed and I, I enjoyed that we got this information here instead of instead of like traditionally having to wait till the end of a end of an arc or something. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think we've been waiting so long for like this kind of information that that it was it was uh, it was due. I think, yeah, yeah. So we are we are in Rain's head, uh, who is in Snag's head, which I'm pointing out because we're really playing with like point of view recursion lately. In in the last, <laughs> uh, you know, we we had one where we 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 thought we were in Ashley's head, but actually we were just watching Ashley on a camera via Victoria. Now we're watching Snag via Dream through Rain. Um, I I can't help but think that there's something thematically important going on with with all of these telescoping viewpoints. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and and we've talked about how important perception is in in the, thematically in the story going forward, and and I think we're continually seeing jumps around in in perception and and seeing through other people's eyes. Um, as like a, a recurring motif here. And I think that's really interesting and, and important. And uh, mm-hmm. Rain being able to snee- see through Snag's head is is an important way of defining the the guilt that he feels and the, the concern that he feels. And, and it's I think it's really fantastic. Yeah, right. And I think it's important to point out like, so, you know, Snag, Snag dreams about, about this fire uh, in this enclosed space, which for now we're assuming was the cluster trigger event. Mm-hmm. And and all these things are all these detailed things are happening. A young girl falls near him and he, he puts himself at risk to put an arm around her to shield her from the deadly crush of bodies. And the smoke is thick behind them. And, and he realizes that the, the crush of bodies seem to be preventing the exit door from opening. And all this stuff is 
it's in his point of view. So you get the sense that Rain is experiencing this dream as if he is having this dream, like he's having these thoughts. So yeah, it's gotta, it's gotta be like a lot of shared, um, sort of feeling between all these, all these cluster people who are sharing these dreams basically. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah. So then he, he tries to lift the girl up so that she can climb through a window, but that's impossible. And then he loses his grip on her. And then he himself tries to climb out through a window, but then he slips and he falls back into the press of bodies. Yeah. And, and this is, so we go through this whole thing and, and then we snap out of it and we realize that this was a dream and we were in rain's head who is in, in snag's head like you said, um, and and there's something that immediately jumps out to you once you learn this information. In the midst of this panic, this desperate attempt, Snag, who only moments ago, chapter-wise, like if we were reading this uh, concurrently, like we would have seen him threaten and desire for someone to be tortured to death, and then we move right into this. Um, so So suddenly we see this man stop to help a girl who's fallen down amidst this, this, uh, stampede and try to save her life. And he goes out of his way, risking his own life to try to help her. Then he tries to pick her up and, and get her to safety. And it's only, it's only until she gives up and like joins the rest of the crowd that he gives up on her. So this is the monster that's building a force of 30 to 60 people to track down torture and kill rain so so th- it's this guy this guy right here so we're, we're almost immediately kind of thrown for a loop here and and the conclusion you have to make i think is is that this guy that rain had to have done something so so terrible to make this guy who was acting like a hero turn so bad and 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 therefore you have to say that that rain you have to assume we don't know this. This is the one thing we don't know, but that rain was responsible for this, this memory that he, that this fire was started by him. Yeah. I, I think that that's a, that's a theory I saw somewhere. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if that occurred to me organically actually, but it certainly makes a lot of sense that, that he was on the opposite side of this thing. Um, cause it, it, basically like after this chapter, I'm, I'm just so curious to know, to know more about snag, yeah, because uh, like you said, everything we've known about him up to this point in the story has just made him out to be a garbage human being um, and j- just like a like a mean, hateful person. Right. And and it's clear that he wasn't always that way. And it's even possible that that so- something sort of exogenous is driving him to behave that way. And he's not he's not actually that bad. I, I don't know. I don't know if I can defend that exactly. Yeah. I just, um, uh, we just don't, we just don't know enough yet, but I think that contrast between the snag we've seen a fight Victoria, the snag that used his emotion arms to drive Victoria into like the worst despair she's had to, to overcome in, in this story so far um, is also the guy who helped and tried to save someone and, and did all these things. So yeah, there's, there's a disconnect there and it, it, becomes very apparent when you read through it. Yeah. So we fade back into Rain's perspective inside this liminal space as Snag's dream ends. We, we're in this shared dream environment. The room is divided into five uh, pentants, uh, which is not a word, but I'm using it, uh, <laughs> each inhabited by one of the cluster members, except for the fifth one, which is black and empty. Each of the pentants is full of a distinct kind of detritus. There's 
there's uh, just like different different kinds of rubble, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really I love this so much. I find the idea of this space like infinitely fascinating. It's this place they are forced to go to every night where they're forced to almost directly interact with each other. They see each other. They've just experienced a shared memory or they've shared in one person's memory. Um, and then they go to this place where they're all forced to stand in a room and look at each other awkwardly. And I really appreciate that the story goes out of its way to show us that this is not that this is a a kind of rote, repetitive act for them all. Like it's something they experience every night because the first thing Rain does says without even needing to look to check the position, Rain reached down for a chair, always in the same place, the same position. And this is this is clearly telegraphing that this is something that he has experienced over and over and over again. Um this is for us, the reader, this is a whole new wrinkle in how powers work. We've never seen something quite like this before, but for rain, it's just another Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it leaves us with a lot of questions actually, mm-hmm. although we, we, we get some answers here. Like there, there is a purpose to this. It's not, right. well, there's multiple purposes. First of all, it's, it's a fascinating contrivance of the shards to force these people who, some of whom hate each other to see each other all the time. There's also the aspect where since they're sharing dreams over and over, you know, let's just assume that Rain actually did do something that resulted in all these people losing so much. They on a regular basis, they have to be in his head as he's doing that when when it's his dream. Right. Right. Um, um, And and then, of course, there's the functional aspect, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, But first, uh, I like this bit where. Rain says, I don't suppose you guys are willing to talk, he asked. Again, he didn't even need to look or check the position of the others. He knew where there would be. There was no reply. Yeah, this is so good. We have these nightly visits where he sees he sees the three people that are actively trying to kill him. And he's forced to not only relive the, relive the things he've done. It, if, if we if we presume that he is responsible for the thing that, that they are reliving in their dreams each night, then he is forced to relive that guilt um, over and over and over again. And then once he's relived it, he has to face down the people that he did it to every single night. And they, and, and, and it's no wonder that this anger is so hot and fresh on every single one of their, their minds. It's been more than a year, I think we say, but they are reminded of this thing every single night. Yeah. And also they, they sleep like crap. So right. They're just perpetually irritable because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, has, has it been a year? I, I don't, I don't, I had no recollection of how I, long I, it had been. I believe snag says that they've been working towards getting terrain for over a year, okay. um, but yeah. I might well, be wrong on that. Yeah. If that's true, that's even worse <laughs> for them. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, I just wanted to take a moment and point out that uh, we're, we're going to learn more about this, these room and the, and the functional aspect of this room in a bit. But this the text takes time for us um, to to explore what each of these spaces looks like. And each of them has a unique space. Um, so I wanted to point that out because it seems like we're again, intentionality. We're pointing out what these different areas look like which means there's it's significant in some way. Okay. So yeah, Rain's 
He says the floor in his section was dilapidated, uneven floorboards with spaces between them. There were scattered books, tools that looked like they hadn't been touched in a while, and some assorted branches and dry pine needles, as if it was a space that had been exposed to the elements. So that's rain. Mm-hmm. A snag's area was store a store without things, empty display cabinets, cracked glass, metal shelves, a lacquered floor, and more diffused light than the other spaces. And uh, Cradles is who we'll learn as the the tinker of the group that I have we have, do we know you wrote that name down. Did we learn that name here or do we learn it later? I can't remember. I'm pretty sure we learn it later when Snag is talking with the um, the time capes. Oh, yeah. So technically not later, but bef- before. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I, yeah. I know. So the, the Cradle's place is slabs of concrete and tile made his space look like a hall of mirrors after an earthquake. If the glass was opaque concrete instead, shattered, dark, claustrophobic, devoid of the human touch. And then Love Losses, our last person, um, it, we, we get to see there's an image of their area the least, but uh, she is sitting in her area in a small squat armchair, and to approach the table in the middle of the room, she has to step over stuffed animals and broken toys. So I, I don't I, I don't have a lot to say about these yet. I haven't quite parsed through what these mean about our like how they could possibly represent either the powers or the character or or what they were doing when they triggered. But I think it is interesting that this brought up and I just wanted to bring it up for, for posterity's sake. Yeah, I agree. It, it's difficult to say too much. The only thing that's, that comes to my mind is that snag was kind of in a, an area that's, that was basically a, a, either a mall or, or had a store right. as part of it. Um, but, but that, that I feel like I'm being a bit too literal by by assuming that that's why his area looks like this yeah and i mean love loss uh their name is love loss so it seems like there are stuffed animals and broken toys in her area possibly she lost a child or something uh, yeah. as part of this and that's why her area represents that um yeah knowing the shards it's not a, a happy memory of of the area you get to hang out in every night <laughs> right yeah so as they're in this area, Snag and the recluse Cradle communicate. Cradle is reaching out to someone who can do power stuff involving sleep, which sounds like that would be very useful in this context. Yes, yes it does. Love Lost silent, silently communicates that whoever Cradle is going to meet is dangerous. Um, she gives him two of her three tokens, which are human teeth, which we come to understand correspond to a method for allocating strength in their shared powers so five shards of glass for Snag, three coins for the recluse. Uh, Snag gives a piece of glass to the recluse as well. The recluse passes Snag two coins, giving them more tinker ability. So, you know, they're they're sorting out who's going to be stronger in what power strategically. Um, and then we have Rain look down at his rectangles of metal. They hadn't asked and he hadn't offered. He had once trying to curry favor. He'd given them his tokens and he'd never received a thing in return. Um, I pulled that out specifically because it's one of the first, you know, we've been in rain, we've been in rain's head for a little bit at this point in the chapter, but this is one of the first little touches of the scared kid that he actually is that that he would try something like that just to, to like, like a puppy dog almost just be like, you know, please, you know, here, 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 you know, because they're giving him not an inch. Right. And, um, yeah, it's just you 
your opinion of Rain changes so much over this chapter, and this is one of the first moments where I think it starts to change. Absolutely, and it is it is interesting because not only do we see that, but he's also in this moment where he's like admitting that he's tried everything. He's tried reasoning with them. He's tried pleading with them. He's tried getting angry with them. And he's resigned now to just the state of sitting down and waiting for the night to end and hopefully getting to drop misinformation or barbed comments in when he hears what they say and, and thinks he could, he could manipulate the conversation a little way. That's what he's resigned to do. That's all he can do now um, because he everything else has not worked and he's tried it all yeah yeah um it's it's that's that's a great it's a great way of showing us rather than you know telling us how much time has passed you know it's been it's been over a year but enough it, it more to the point it's been enough time that he's just worn down yeah yeah and i like so the 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 tokens of the power are interesting because Coins, teeth, glass, and bits of metal are all the representative tokens of these people. All of them have three, uh, except for Snag, who has five. So I'm not sure if that's trying to say that Snag's uh, relative level of power is just higher than all the others. And therefore, he gets more tokens representative of of that power. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I have a hard time keeping track of whose power is whose anyway. Um, I'm pretty sure I think snags is the mover power. That's correct. And I think, I think love lost is the emotions power. Yes. And I think the tinker is cradle rain is the breaker or the rather the blaster power. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, yeah. It's because they're, they're stronger on different days, right? So it's his day. So he gets five. Someone else's will have five the next day. Oh, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, because they, be they have relative strengths. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We figured it yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> crack, crack the case. So, yeah. yeah. So we see them, we see them reallocate their powers and then Rain wakes up still feeling exhausted and he heads downstairs for breakfast. We're immediately confronted with an unusual living situation. His aunt wakes him up. But cooking breakfast are two girls that he really doesn't know and another who's his cousin. And of the men sitting at the breakfast table, Rain only knows one. All the people in the house regard him coldly. Yeah. Um, and and you gotta you got to connect this back to the dream room that he just came from where no one was talking to them. Everyone either glared at him or ignored him outright. And now he's awake and he's in his world and this is his family. And... He gets the same stuff. He gets cold, silent looks. Um, his aunt is talking to him at least, but no one else seems to like that he's here or or want him here. And he's just kind of alone in both his dreams and in his waking world. Um, so it kind of makes sense that that the the misfit toys and of course Aaron are the people he's really latched onto because those are the only people in his life that seem to like him. Yeah, I think we'll get into this later on too, maybe. But it does make me wonder why they don't like him. Um, because it could be that he did something specifically, but we don't. We, it could just be that he's a cape, and maybe the fallen just treat capes this way. I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Spo- spoiler. Don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's a spoiler, Matt. <laughs> they know. know. They know. Yeah. If they're know. listening to this, yeah, they know. Uh, I like this moment. His cousin, uh, Allie, standing next to him, pulled the knife out of the drying rack. 
the metal made a sound as it ran against the side of the rack, singing slightly in the wake of it. Between that, the weapon, the hostility he felt from the two girls at the stove, he shivered slightly. He looked out the window. Yeah, um, that's it's really creepy. And it's like a constant reminder that he is never he never feels safe. Right. He's always being hunted. And even a girl pulling a knife out of a, a drying rack is enough to get him back to this this central idea that these people that are hunting him want him dead and he's not comfortable anywhere. No, it, he's he's sort of barely holding it together, actually. Like he looks out the window and kind of spaces out kind of like freezes up and people kind of notice that he's doing it and, and he he's he kind of goosed in, into actually moving again but yeah, he's, yeah. he's not doing too well so he showers his minding his scuffs and scrapes and then he more or less sneaks out of the house and he heads to school uh, another boy jay comes by in a pickup loaded with kids and invites a couple of girls to climb on who and then he offers rain a ride to uh, but Rain turns him down because he says he's going to walk to school with someone who we know is Aaron. And and, he, and, and um, Jay mocks him, says he'll never have a chance with Aaron <laughs> and uh, drives off. Classic Jay. Yeah. yeah. He even kind of throws up dust as he drives away just to be a, a dick. Yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah, overall, this part of the story is like not from a different genre, but definitely from a different setting. Um, it's, it's, it's old timey, you know, you, you got scowling parents, w- women working in the kitchen while men sit around, they're all just hard, humorless people. Um, it, it's, it just, it's, it's a, it's a very unpleasant place. And, and I think we're meant to be surprised and a little confused about what's going on exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It is, it is pretty subtle. Um, the, the text doesn't draw a super amount of attention to it because our point of view character is very used to this way of life, but it is still kind of jarring because it is so much different from the other stuff that we've seen in both worm and in the story. Um, we don't draw attention to how things are different. They're just presented to us, right? Um, everything is just so different like the adults are always referred to as mr and mrs um we see uh, names like like elijah um which is like this very specific kind of uh, biblical name um old timey is th- is r- really the best way to describe it i like that you use that name because like it's kind of it almost seems a little amish um that was the vibe i got yeah that was the vibe that was sort of the vibe i got but there's but like with with a undertone of of hostility to it. Whereas the Amish are more peaceful. Yeah. yeah. So you think of them as being anyway. So yeah, he meets Aaron and her brother Bryce coming out of the house and they walk Bryce to church. Um, then there, you just kind of get a sense of Aaron and, and rains (laughs) interactions, like how they interact with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, it's 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 pretty adorable. Um, this bit where Rain accidentally gets a look at Aaron's bra, and then he he says he had very complicated feelings on those tops now, as he found himself simultaneously trying to memorize every detail of what he'd seen and prepared himself so he wouldn't be an asshole and look again at what she didn't necessarily intend to show him. He was well aware of how the two things conflicted, <laughs> um, which is one of many bits of this interlude that cement Rain as just basically a scared kid, like all, all, all of the suspicion that I had for him was just like blown away by seeing how he's just, he's just piecing himself together as a human being. He's, he's not, he's not Machiavellian. 
Right. He's, he's, he's a few years out from digging holes in the ground for fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's like, it's not to say that he didn't do terrible things. Right. I mean, like he, there's clearly some really bad stuff in his past, but he is also a teenager and he's a teenager dealing with these feelings that he doesn't quite know what to do with in this community that seems oppressive and kind of against that kind of uh, idea um, we'll learn more later about how uh, relationships work in this community. And he doesn't really have anyone to talk to about this kind of stuff. And he's a he's a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, somehow I passed over the fact that Aaron refers to BT3. Like like I didn't I didn't get it and parse it correctly. That's probably because the idea of there being not one, but two ET sequels in this world is monstrous and evil who who would who would do such a thing yeah i mean that's probably why scion picked this world yeah is, is to, it needed to, to be destroyed yeah wreak justice upon it yeah so through their conversation it becomes apparent i think that these people are and have always been rain's people this kind of messed up community is his family yeah yeah which i think is is really really important he's not just living here just because he has nowhere else to go. This isn't like a, a recent thing. This is, this is rain's home. And if there's any discomfort that rain feels in being amongst these people, it seems that it's only because of the recent events in his life, his trigger and, and those things that happened. Um, it doesn't seem like that was the way it always was. Yeah. I, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah. So we also learn that apparently the girls that were in his house were his suitors. I'm not sure exactly how that works out, but I think that's the gist. Yeah. Basically they just bring women around so he can observe them and choose which one he likes the most. I mean, this is obviously a very patriarchal oppressive society. So, um, because one of them is his cousin uh, and he says, not just like a, like a once removed cousin or a distant cousin, like cousin, cousin. Um, right. Yeah. Well, it, it's also funny that like the, even though they were nominally there for him to look at or whatever, they're also just like scowling at him or, or at the very least being really cold to him and right. probably individually don't want anything to do with him. So it's right. like his his stock is so low in this community that even the girls who were ordered to spend time around him <laughs> are, are like don't really want to. Right. And, and we don't get clear indication of whether that's specific to the idea of them being put in this arranged marriage type of situation or if it's specific to rain himself. But we do see later in the chapter that everyone looks at rain with this look of disappointment and disgust in the, in when they get to the church. So I, I get the feeling that it is not just something it's, it, it is specific to him and his stance in the community. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Um, yeah. So man, I love the subtext of their conversation between him and Aaron, which is that he's like Romeo and Juliet level in love with her. And she's talking about how he's going to have to marry his cousin or whatever. And she's going to have to marry some random asshole. And <laughs> you can just like, you can, you can, you can pinpoint the moment when his heart rips in half. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's so funny because intercut with every beat of this conversation is rain. Like, um, observing her 
and her every move. She stretches, she yawns, and he is very, very aware of all these moves and these motions while they're having this conversation about the other people they're going to be forced to uh, to marry. Yeah, um, which makes me think like I'm pretty sure she is actually into him. Yeah, it, it's tough. It's tough to tell. Like we're in Rain's point of view, right? And and Rain has made it very clear that uh, that he would never, ever, ever presume to think that she could be interested in him. Like in that conversation, like he is like, why is she even walking with me down the road? Um, so it's tough. To, it's like because our point of view character does not read any of their interactions in any way other than we're just friends. It's tough to really draw conclusions from it. But but I think you're probably right on some level, at least like she he brings up the girl. She pushes for more information on, on the arranged marriage thing. She jokingly pushes him towards the one she knows is his cousin. Um, I, I don't know for sure if she has a thing for him or not. It's definitely not an equal <laughs> obsession. He is definitely way more into her than she is to him. Um, but she does like him. I mean, she she hangs out with him. She's willing to put herself in harm's way for him. Um, whether it's romantic or not, I think that remains to be seen. But this rain is important to Aaron. Yeah, I think the reason why I had that feeling is that her bringing up like sort of almost too too much bringing up the fact that like oh you're you're your cousin you're you're gonna have to marry your cousin you've got all these girls in your house right it's almost like fishing it's almost like probing him to see how he reacts and what his feelings are about that yes basically yeah. to see if, if he's gonna be like oh yeah it's awesome having all the girls after me all the time which is not how he reacts obviously uh so in a sense her fishing is working um yeah, I don't know. I, I, I read it a certain way, but I don't want to read too much into it because Rain is not astute enough to really figure out what Aaron's thinking anyway. So it would be a bit a bit too much for us to try to reach through his yeah. point of view to get a, a, a correct reading. Yeah, I think our, our best way at being able to decipher this is having Victoria watch them interact <laughs> a little bit because I think yeah. Victoria will definitely notice if yeah. if she is. Yeah, cut through to the heart of it. Yeah. So as they reach the church, Rain notes that uh, Aaron gets a certain kind of look. Uh, he was spooked seeing it. He knew who these people were. He'd grown up with them, and he knew how they functioned. On a level, he was one of them. And, and then, of course, Rain gets looks too, but, but he gets bad ones, like we said. Whatever happened with him, everybody knows about it. Um, or, like I said, maybe, maybe the Fallen are just prejudiced against capes, but I don't, I don't think I don't that's think true. I don't think so. No, I don't think, I don't think they are. So... Yeah, I mean, he did either they don't know he's a cape or he did mm -hmm. something to really piss them off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I really like I really like this beat on a level. He was one of them. Um, and I think what we're, what we're doing is we're really reinforcing this idea that like. This is not Golem in the Empire 88, right? This is not a guy who was raised by these people that doesn't agree with their point of view isn't isn't really part of them was just raised by them he is he is one of these people and i think yeah. that's important especially towards where we go at the end of this chapter yeah yeah that's that's very interesting to compare the empire 88 with the fallen because i think 
Empire 88 was all about putting like a veneer of, of gentility on everything like like Kaiser with his kind of like very civilized way of portraying himself. Yeah. Whereas the fallen have no need for that at all. They're, they're just like t- take us or leave us as we are. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. So, yeah, here we have uh, the preacher walks up. In, in front of the congregation and he's a skinny shirtless long haired and tattooed. I imagine him as an older saltier Justin Bieber <laughs> and uh, he opens with yo faithful. I imagine him as Aaron Paul. Um, yeah. That, was, that, 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 that works too. Yeah. 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 We're the fallen bitch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's, so it's quickly clear that this is a very earthy sermon. Uh, he talks about how it's, you know, how hard it's been to establish their settlement, how bad the winter was. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know what that says to me? It says you get in our way, you pick a fight with us, you'd best be prepared for the edge of our fucking swords. You'd best be prepared for us to take possession of your land. Do not get in our way. Am I right? And then a bit later, this is the credo we live by. There are fuckers and there are the fucked, and we are fuckers of the highest order. Um... Yeah, I believe Jesus said something like that at some point, probably somewhere towards the back. Yeah, that's right. Like he was, he was destroying the temple and then just yeah. dropped that little little gem in there. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and then, of course, the what, what like one of those cool moments where it strikes you maybe just as you're getting it. Uh, we are the fallen. Yeah, it was really cool because like I I literally think he in his sermon he mentioned something about was like we've always been about the end of days or something mm-hmm. like that and i was like wait a minute and then just as your brain is is connecting those dots you read this line and you're just like it's it's a great revelation it works very well yeah and yeah. I, and i have a lot to say about it but i think i'll wait till till the end of the chapter to talk about this a little bit okay yeah so we jump to the present or the very immediate past uh, <laughs> really doesn't matter because of how the story works at this point. But yeah, uh, rain is, is watching snag talk business with the mysterious assassin in hollow point. Uh, and he describes the ver- veritable army that they've assembled to go after rain and his Cape allies. The main aim is to make sure that rain is killed. Um, and, and here Kenzie says, I hope we're okay. This is a bit much to deal with just us. And Rain thinks it's not to deal with you, which um, that, especially on the reread, it really smacks of of meaning like Snag is not actually talking about smashing and scattering the misfit toys. He's talking about Rain's fallen allies. That was kind of my feeling about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, because we, last chapter we had this this conversation about they mentioned eight to nine capes, most of them um teenagers but not all and we assumed and i think we were supposed to assume that we were talking about the misfit toys and we were talking about our group and that they they already knew that they had these guys all equipped and ready and to defend them and i think this is a pretty clever misdirect for wild bow and we, you and i have talked about misdirects before and how they can sometimes feel pretty gimmicky gimmicky like you're kind of almost intentionally misleading the reader about something in order to, to pay off some way as like a gotcha later in the story. But this one doesn't feel gimmicky to me. And it's because this is like wild bow. The story never explicitly states this fact in here. 
It just lays it out for us and we assume because of the information we know. And and this is part of, I think, what the last chapter did with not seeing reactions to thing. We were we were so focused on this conversation. We were so focused on this back and forth between these villain characters that we never went back and saw how anyone in the Misfit Toys or Victoria was reacting to this at all. And therefore, um, we don't we don't ever get like explicitly told or or the book never explicitly tells us that we are to assume that the eight to nine capes that he's talking about are the toys. Um, we just did that. And therefore, when it when it kind of uh, the gotcha comes up and, and we learn that this was just a misdirect, it feels natural because we feel like we just kind of did it to ourselves. Yeah, right. The, the misdirect doesn't doesn't overplay its hand it it kind of stays just long enough for us to feel a little bit worried but it's not like we're suspending this information until you know the moment that the army shows up at the doorstep of the eight to nine capes and the door opens and we realize that it's not the eight to nine capes we thought it was <laughs> right the, uh, which can be awesome by the way but yeah it, you know, it depends that, it depends on how you do it right yeah i, yeah. I think the best mr x to me are the ones where you think you are drawing your own conclusions, even though you're being prompted to draw those conclusions. And then you're not finding out that you were misled. Rather, you are just finding out that you are wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way of framing it. I like that. It's a good lesson to learn. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so Rain is freaked out. And he runs, he's panicking, he can't breathe. And he just books it. Can't run very far, though, because he's not in great shape. Tristan chases him down because Tristan is superhuman and also very fit. Uh, and it's it's clear that Tristan knows what Rain did and who he's really with. Uh, and he thinks that Rain should tell the others. But Rain, somewhat understandably, has a lot of hangups with this idea. Like, like, what if the Fallen hurts somebody that someone on the team cares about? What if they realize that he used to be prejudiced against people like Sveta or, for that matter, people like Tristan? Yeah, and that's, that's our big reveal, right? That... Yeah. Tristan Tristan is gay uh, or or at least bisexual. We don't know for sure yet, but this this comp, this like this opens up so many different things for us and my brain kind of exploded with all the different meanings this could be. I mean, it it makes Moonsong's hatred of him um much more interesting. It makes his relationship between Byron also much more interesting and it also means that like we had these these moments where byron kind of checked out victoria and we said oh like byron byron likes victoria um and and this worked as a laying the seeds for something but it was also a clear setup now that we know we learn here that tristan is gay we know now that byron is is not because byron was really look, dressing victoria up and down with his eyes um so that's a, a sense of tension between these two characters that that occupy the same space. Um, it's really, really interesting from yeah. just the Tristan perspective. We haven't even gotten into Rain yet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's um, uh, it, it's. Uh, I'm 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 thinking about like the the fact the fact that Tristan didn't ogle Victoria, even though Victoria is kind of established as being very attractive. I at first kind of held as like a sign of like oh he's he's a decent guy because he can control himself mm -hmm. 
But turns out it's probably less to do with that and more to do with he just wasn't interested. Right. And it, it, it goes back to Tristan's original speech about how he wants to go out at night and he wants to have fun and party and do all these things. And he can't because of Byron. And that's that's another another key into that whole thing. That yeah. for for both of them, I think the other sexuality having to experience that would make them extremely uncomfortable. And that that complicates things a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but to get to get back to Rain, because this is Rain section, um like we, we hinted towards earlier, this reveals that Rain wasn't just a person living with the fallen. This reveals that Rain was a fallen, that he believed these things, that that he would have said terrible things to a person to Tristan or a person like Tristan, that he would have done terrible things, that he was a bigot, um, that he fully bought into all these things. Like we said, Rain is not Gollum. He's not a guy who was who was raised in this thing that never really adopted uh, their their beliefs. He was gung ho with the stuff at some point. And again, we go back to that that mall fire. We go back to that event. And 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 was this a fallen terrorist attack that he was participating in? Maybe maybe he tried to stop it at the very end when he noticed people were trapped, and that's why the rest of the fallen hate him. Um, that would certainly explain his p- power, right? Like if if he's trying to open the right. he's trying to to slice open the place to get people out in desperation. Um, that would explain his trigger. But, um, I think the most important thing is that like when I first read this, when I first, when we had the, we are the fallen section, my initial reaction was, Oh, um, he's probably just hiding there with these people. He doesn't actually, he doesn't actually believe the things that they believe, but no, the, the, the story doubles down on it and says, no, he, he did. And possibly the only reason he doesn't anymore is because the trigger event had some emotion changing thing that we don't fully understand yet. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, or, or just like the trauma of what happened by itself was enough to, to kind of push him out of sync with them. Right. Right. Um, and I, I mean, we're definitely confronting this idea that, you know, Victoria has a whole theory of who deserves redemption, who who deserves a, a second chance. And it seems like the more we learn about rain, the more we learn that, yeah, he's, he's just like a, a scared kid who almost fell into a situation that wasn't his, his fault possibly. And simultaneously is the kind of person who Victoria might not want to give a second chance to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, very clearly what we are doing here we've spent time to establish victoria's personality that that while she believes in forgiveness of people that while she believes in second chances she draws a line somewhere and those lines are so far we know uh amy (laughs) um members of the slaughterhouse nine uh some members of empire 88 and the fallen we had this whole interaction where she ruined her attempts at getting into a group because she was so intent on making sure that the fallen are not doing something bad um this you're right this is intentional um we are now putting these people these people on these lists that victoria says are not worthy of a second chances directly in front of her putting them on the same team with her basically presenting them as challenges to her worldview will do you see rain victoria do you do, what does rain deserve what does ashley deserve and 
do how do you get to a place where they you you find whether or not they deserve the second chance that they're getting yeah right um and and are we going to make our way back up to the top of that list of people who uh, right. decided to deserve second chances exactly exactly and that's the central thing at the, at the at the heart of this whole thing is what will your interaction be with your sister um and and Matt, this is why I think Victoria is the, is a just the more I learn about the story, the more I realize that she was the perfect protagonist for all this, because like we've talked about the idea of second chances. We've talked about the idea of new beginnings, fresh starts. And Wild Bo could have structured this book to be from the point of view of someone who did something so horrible in the previous world, who was a monster. And now after the end of the world is trying to be a better person. And then that that's, that's an interesting story. That's conflict. You're a person who is now trying to better yourself in the new world. And, and you watch as they go through the trials and tribulations, as they attempt to change, attempt to better themselves and attempt to earn second chances. But that's not, that's not what the story is. The story is told from, not from a person who did terrible things. And, and Victoria is not perfect. Like she, she made mistakes in her cape, life before everything went bad but nothing nothing to the level of any of some of the the most like terrible monsters of worm um but this is a story not about what a bad person must do to earn forgiveness it seems to be a story about what the wronged has to go through in order to get to a place where they are capable of offering that forgiveness like earning forgiveness is hard giving it is like the hardest thing you can do. And yeah. that is, I think so much more fascinating of a story and, and a place to take this. Yeah. And I think it's a more, I don't know, it, it's a more healing thing to have as the theme because, right. because like for, I think this is one of those things that comes with age is realizing that you don't forgive people so that they can feel better about what they did. You forgive people so that you can let go of it. Right. And, and, and it's really hard to actually do in, in a way that, you know, where you actually do let go. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's a wonderful, really powerful theme for a story to have. Yeah. And, and I don't think, I don't think us or the story is concluding on whether or not these, these people, whether what Amy has earned Victoria's forgiveness or will ever earn Victoria's forgiveness. But I, I do think these are questions that the story is asking, um, is she going to be able to get to a point where she's able to move past these things that happened to her? How is she going to get there? And we see in these characters that are part of her team as the first step in that, the first challenge to her worldview of some people are not worthy of forgiveness. Well, do you think rain is, do you think Ashley is? And, and we'll, we'll see. Yeah. And and I'm not, I'm not necessarily taking a normative stance here, but it is interesting that we're, we're we just are leaving a chapter where there's some Christian um, imagery and and themes because the Christian answer to does this person deserve forgiveness is always that's a malformed question because everyone deserves forgiveness right right like 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 who are you to judge in the first place you know Victoria um, so that's that's an interesting contrast in yeah. terms of like you, you, has Amy earned forgiveness well from, from that point of view you don't have to earn forgiveness right you're supposed to offer forgiveness you mm-hmm. know and and I, again I'm not 
I, I think that's an admirable philosophy, but it's certainly not what Victoria is uh, is taking on. Right. And it's 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 also something that's very easy to say and much more difficult to do. Exactly. And I, I really I really do like what you said about that her her forgiving anyone and anything is not has nothing to do with them. And and it has everything to do with her and her ability to to move past this thing. And it's hard. It's so hard. What what was done to her was terrible. And I think that's what the story is going to be exploring. How to heal from these from when when someone does something terrible to you. How to heal from that. And I think forgiveness is part of that healing. Uh, and we'll see we'll see if it's it's possible. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So this chapter wraps up with Tristan trying to reassure him uh, that that it's going to be okay. But then he has to swap out with Byron, and then Byron is also reassuring, but in a much more laid back way. And he he tells Rain to maybe call Mrs. Yamada, which is very good advice. Always. Chapter. What? It's always yeah. good advice. Always. Yeah, that's right. So the chapter ends with Rain leaving to seek sanctuary amid monsters. Yeah, which is not a good a good sign for Rain's um, <laughs> reformation, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, the chips are down. Gonna go back with those terrible people. Yeah. Um. So we we segue on into four dot four. Finally. And, yeah, <laughs> Victoria is being watched on the train uh, to the meeting with Houndstooth. She's understandably paranoid about it. Her mind conspicuously flinches away from thinking about the slash across Moose's cheek. I love, I love how that that line is written too. The slash on Moose's face lingered in my mind's eye when I wasn't careful about where that eye was turned. That's just beautiful imagery. I, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. It also implies that she has to put so much effort into managing where her attention is because right. there are so many landmines in her mind. Yeah. And this, this I think links us right back up to what we talked about last week when Victoria was not really reacting to anything that went on, at least internally. And even, even when the wretch struck out and attacked Moose, she didn't have a kind of internal monologue reaction to that. We didn't get to hear her think about uh, feeling like she was treading water and drowning. We didn't get to hear about her um, like losing herself uh, we didn't see any of that, but now here we are, uh, presumably a day later, she's on a train, she's alone and her paranoia creeps in again. People are looking at her and that causes her, her mind to wander. Yeah. And, uh, the person watching her reminds us of someone who she refuses to internally name at all, but we know from context that it's Amy, of course, that she sees lurking in the shadows. Yep. Yep. That uh, that freckled face sister of hers, Matt. Yeah, it's 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 sad that literally anyone with freckles triggers her terror because yeah. when she actually looks at her, she realizes that she looks nothing like Amy. Yeah. But yeah, the girl is staring at her, but looking away whenever Victoria glances her way. She, uh, Victoria reflects on how she used to get recognized all the time, and she would enjoy it and didn't really think think nothing of it, other than you know that it was gratifying. Now she has more complex feelings about that aspect of her personality. And when she sees someone staring at her, she instinctively reads it as the bad kind of staring, ogling at a deformed wretch. And she also worries that it's somebody hired by Tattletail or Hollow Point to follow her. Yeah, I really, really love the writing here, Matt. Um, we're basically back in Victoria's complicated head again. <laughs> and and we, we like we watch as she kind of systematically and almost clinically parses out how her brain responds to being looked at. It's like, OK, number one, uh, they're looking at the wretch. Number two, they think I'm a superhero and I draw strength from that. Uh, number three, 
maybe maybe someone's gonna kill me number yeah. four they want to do me <laughs> and then number five oh no they're suspension my teeth and <laughs> she basically runs down these things clinically and i like how they alternate between good attention and bad attention as we run down that list it's very it's a very interesting view into victoria's mind and i think it goes back to that victoria as someone who has been through uh therapy for so long uh tends to be more self-aware than i think most people would yeah i mean the just the fact that she's her internal monologue sifts through five possible interpretations of someone looking at her tells us how sort of introspective and analytical she is about all this stuff yeah <laughs> so she distracts herself by looking at her phone and finds 49 unread email messages which are almost all just kenzie's stream of consciousness yeah and this is of course really important because we are on the way to meet houndstooth who is going to dish some information on kenzie and we know kenzie is nervous um because of this but we're also establishing this troubled behavior and we're establishing right before houndstooth is going to dish on her so this is reinforcing that as much as kenzie might seem better there is patterns happening here yeah are are patterns happening here right so ashley finds her on the train and intimidates a boy into vacating his seat so that she can sit across from Victoria. <laughs> Victoria scolds her for this, arguing that the negative word of mouth from small things like that can ripple out to give somebody a bad reputation. Ashley is profoundly unconvinced and the two argue about it. Can I just say that I love uh, Ashley and, and Victoria's entire interaction throughout this, this entire chapter. I think it's yes. really, it's really great. Um, we are both learning how different these characters are while also seeing some of their similarities as well. And the crux of this argument that Victoria is making is that small things matter, that the way you present yourself to the world matters. Even if you can't see those ripples, they're still there. And I like how this fits what we know about Victoria. We talked about her fashion sense and the way she notices how people present themselves to the world. And this fits that. Um, and, and so does the, how she handles this next situation. Yeah, that's really interesting because Ashley is also very cognizant of how she presents herself to the world, but she just cares about very different things. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we're, we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this. So yeah, yeah. The, the girl who's watching them approaches and it's clear that she's a fan. Glory Girl was something of an inspiration to her. And, uh, and and Victoria thinks it seems she needed me more as an idol than she needed me as a connection or someone she could relate to. Yeah, I found this really interesting. Um, it, it ties back to what Victoria was saying as this girl approached that one of the things she misses about being a superhero is that she misses connecting with people. She misses having that that real human connection with the people that she meets. So you get a hint that maybe she's a little disappointed here that she just wants her as an idol. But she also decides that based on, she decides that this is what this girl needs based on an expression that was impossible to fathom, which I, which jumped out at me too. It's like this girl gives an expression that's impossible to fathom. And then she's like, Oh, she just needed me as an idol. It's like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you fathomed it pretty good there, Victoria. <laughs> yeah. So um, Ashley kind of snaps at the girl to hand over her notebook to be signed. And then Victoria signs it and then she gives this speech. I can only encourage and inspire. And I'm really glad if I've helped with that. The strength, the fairness, the poise, though, 
that comes from you. Everything you've triumphed over, surviving the bad days, getting to here, didn't doing well enough to be part of the athletics block. I close the book, the pen still between the pages. I pass it to her and put my hands over hers as she took the book. I met her eyes. That's you. That's your power. Pretty much what I wrote, but I wanted to say it too. Um, so just the fact, like, I don't know, it's just awesome that she's so like, she's able to convey this speech and it's also heartfelt, which is the amazing part. Yeah. Um, I love, I fucking love Victoria. I, she's just so, she's so good at this. She's so good at this. She's so good at this, like making people feel good about themselves. And I think Matt notice again, that, that physical contact that she initiates physical contact and we pay attention to it. She puts her hands over this girl's hands as she passes the book to her. And we know again, what, what physical contact means to Victoria. Yeah, that's a good catch there. I didn't notice that. But yeah, every time she voluntarily touches someone, it, it, it means that she has forgotten, you know, for that moment that she's supposed to be freaked out about her body, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So the girl's name is Presley. So Presley asks if Ashley will sign and Ashley gives a curt no. After the girl leaves, Ashley admits that she can't hold a pen uh, due to her, her malfunctioning hands, which leads them to conclude their, uh, sorry, to continue their argument about image management. And it kind of culminates in Ashley delivering this barb. You're strong. Yes. She said her voice barely audible. She took off her sunglasses poised. I think it's an act. An effective act, the kind that becomes reality after enough time, but not enough time has passed. Fair, we'll see, but fearless. So yeah, it, it heats up, and then Ashley starts to get all damsel on her. <laughs> and uh, at this point, uh, she Victoria kind of leaves temporarily. I, I love this. I love this so much. And like, uh, Ashley is throwing her words back in her face, right? The, mm -hmm. the, this conversation when the thing that the Victoria wrote to Presley, the strength, the fairness, the poise, like that comes from you. And Ashley's throwing those words back in her face. You're strong. Yeah. Poised. Nah, you're good at acting. It's not real yet, though. Uh, fair. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. And she's throwing these words back in her face. And it's just so well done. And she's getting right to the core of victoria's central problem this this central thing that 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 her warrior monk persona is an act it is not her yet it is not really who she is it is who she wants to be but ashley sniffs this out almost immediately she she struck a nerve yeah right and, and it's true she's right yeah yeah and and i love i love this part i started to respond but there was a hollow feeling in my mouth and throat where the words were supposed to be. I closed my mouth. Then I said, just as quiet, she needs that lie. And she's talking about Presley, how she needs the, she needs the lie about why Ashley didn't sign her book. She needs that to know that it was not about her. It was, it was about Ashley, but this comes right after Ashley blatantly accused her of acting poised of, of putting forth these things that were not real. So, so who really needs the lie, Victoria? Is it is it Presley or is it you? Yeah, right. I, I mean, definitely 
definitely this is part of the warrior monk is Victoria's way of, of convincing herself she's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like Ashley says, eventually I think a mask like that can become real. Right. But it's not, um, it's not been enough time yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Victoria flies after Presley and gets her email and then catches up uh, with the train to the next stop. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is, she's like, she's pushed into such a moment of uncomfort that she starts acting kind of crazy. Like she, and she, she is still aware enough to know that she's acting kind of crazy. Like she said, I just left. I just like fought back against Ashley, got her to a point where she's threatening to kill everyone on the train and then left her alone. I mean, Tristan's there, but still, uh, and then goes to get her email address because she has to, she has to make this right. She has to, it's the only way to make, to bring back that poise, to bring back that act is to channel that idea of being the idol again. So she has to go back to Presley again. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so she, she flashes back while she, uh, after she, uh, gets the email, she flashes back to that memory of her first official arrest, which we must point out is at least the second time we've revisited this important memory. Yeah. The first time she recalled her mom's huge pride in this injury she took getting the guy. And then here we learn that her dad was also proud of her, but there's the specific note of he looked very tired as he bent down, kissed the top of my head. Um, and that's very a very different connotation because like you got the sense her mom was like welcoming her into the peerage of capes and, and her dad like kisses her on the top of the head which is something you do to your little girl yeah you know um it's it's a it's a sign of it's like my reading of this is him being like oh no <laughs> right you know right um, like but, yeah like he knows what this means for her mm-hmm. like we we have complicated feelings about carol and how this was important to carol because it was important to Carol, but I think her father understands what this means for her as a person, what this means her life is going to to be like now, that this is not yeah. the last injury she's going to have. Right. And, and I think it's it's really important that we see what triggers this memory, what 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 why Victoria brings up this memory, because because like you said, um, she has just left angry Ashley alone. And then she has gone off to chase down Presley. Now she's returning to the train and she's trying to center herself. She's she's thinking she's going through everyone in her group, every one of the misfit toys and, and how troubled they are and how like this is her duty. This is her job. This is what I need to do. But then she says, I won't let people like Presley suffer at the expense of helping these people, which is a, which is a good thought, I think except it basically allows her to ignore this this deeply worried feeling she's getting and and this is what this is where she goes back to memory she goes and searches for a time where she felt a little bit taller a little more poised um and she goes back to this memory which like you said we have seen before um and and basically admitting by the way that Ashley was completely right that that this this poise is all an act because she has to search in her head for a memory to channel that poise um but you're right that this memory that gives her strength is, is tinged with this hint of sadness to it. And I wonder if we're seeing the cracks in Ashley's uh, Victoria's um, ability to channel um, memories, to bring up this act of poise or act of warrior monkitude uh, cracking a little bit. Yeah. um, I think she's going to have to 
find an entirely new way of, of being a hero because and, and the, the warrior monk is kind of her attempt to to find that but it's kind of her first stab at it because she she's falling back on like the old pattern of, of how she used to be and how things used to be but that's not something that she can actually return to she can't return to being you know the young member of new wave who who can rely on her parents um for for many different reasons that is out of her reach now and so it does fail to really proper up the way she wants it to when she reaches for those memories for strength i think yeah i think you're right yeah so she returns to the train and tristan has joined ashley they talk about kenzie's habit of blowing up their phones and uh, victoria has them all take a picture together to send to presley which prompts me to think about secret identities like if anybody's following Victoria, they now have pictures of Damsel and Capricorn unmasked, don't they? Like, <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, she put face, she put hands in front of faces, so it's it's fine, Matt. It's fine, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, completely secure. But I mean, but also like neither of these guys seem to care a lot about secret identities. Like, first of all, I yeah. think Damsel's is already blown, as far as I know, and Tristan yeah. freely introduces himself as Capricorn or Tristan to Houndstooth. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. They don't seem to care. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously Victoria's already out. I just thought it was interesting that in, in normally people are a lot more conscientious about their secret identities. Yeah. I really, I really liked, I I love Ashley and I really liked, she's like, I've only had one other picture taken of me and it was a mugshot. And Victoria's like, did you look good for the mugshots? Of course. It's like so matter of factly like, yeah, duh. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 yeah, Ashley really grew on me in this chapter, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because she showed a lot more self-awareness than than previously. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, they meet Houndstooth, uh, who they describe as uh, Anubis Writ Western. And they start out <laughs> talking about Hollow Point, the status quo and strategy. The conversation moves on to talking about Kenzie. Houndstooth is pretty stubborn on the point that Kinsey is a pain to be in charge of and that you should be really suspicious of any indication that she's better because she's a surveillance counter surveillance tinker, which I guess means she's good at evading prying, prying eyes as she is at building her own. Yeah, great. It's, it's mm-hmm. great. And this is the second time, Matt, we've had someone with with a, a much more vast prior knowledge of a person dropping information about them to our team. Uh, and, and just like Tristan, as much as a lot of this, I believe, is probably like partly either exaggeration or out of date information informed by Houndstooth's very particular perspective on this person, there's there's definitely going to be kernels of truth to it. Um, and like we have to look like one of the things when you're analyzing a story, you look for patterns, right? I mean, that's that's the whole idea of what a three beat is, is noticing patterns and i'm not saying this is a three beat but we are seeing patterns in how information about these people is being relayed to our team yeah that's a good point um like 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 here for example he gives these very clear warnings and then we kind of get to see a little bit later how victoria implements or fails to implement the the warning yeah um, so for example houndsuit says we explained they heard us but they didn't listen they didn't take it to heart because she is was was nine. She's cute. She's precocious, and she has a really skewed skill set where she's really good at getting close to people, and she's really tragically bad at staying there. Messes follow. 
And then he elaborates that she's so eager to please that she'll pull multiple all-nighters to make something impressive. Uh, and the only way to get ahead of it, according to him, is to treat minding her as a full-time job. And then, and then further, she doesn't build teleporters. Like, she'll commit to making stuff that isn't her specialization and she can't really do just because she knows people want it. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. And all throughout this, Tristan is basically shifted into his misfit toys classic defense mode he's mm-hmm. regurgitating again and again no she's better now she's she's better she's gotten better she's doing much better like she's he says that she never showed emotion she never let people know when something was going wrong they're like no we've seen her she got mad remember that time when she flipped out at chris for no reason that's good news mm-hmm. um and and but at the same time we are primed to remember that she's also spamming all of their email accounts stream of consciousness because she's freaking out. Uh, and, and Victoria for her part is not defending Kenzie here. Um, she's just kind of silently listening and like trying to control people on her team when they get a little too carried away about this. Um, she's just kind of absorbing all the information that she's hearing. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good point to talk a little bit about why a lot of people have talked about uh, empathizing and relating to Kinsey. Yeah. Um, I think there's just a lot of, uh, Kinsey is just a, a, a very hard on her sleeve, insecure young person. And I think that is very easy to relate to. Like whether or not you exhibit her particular pattern of like getting like, like way too effusively emotional at people and then it kind of scares them away. Uh, I think we can all relate to to having a bit of insecurity when we were, you know, roughly her age. Yeah, and or like and now or 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 any age. <laughs> yeah, um, and and just like she she exhibits it, so it's kind of so guilelessly almost that that you you can't help but but relate to it. Yeah, no, I mean completely. Like we <laughs> people, a lot of people's motivation for working hard on things is to impress the people they care about, or or to to be noticed and to be appreciated and that is a very relatable trait she has taken it to the extreme it seems but i mean matt we talk on this podcast we work 40 hours a week on this podcast so people will notice us so i i can relate to that yeah i, I suppose so i suppose so um yeah we we feed on your clicks guys so uh yeah um so finally ashley is tired of listening to Houndstooth's uh, uh, feedback. She says, uh, she's not a bull in a china shop. She's not a headache. She's not a bringer of destruction, a tinker or ward, a nine-year-old or even an 11-year-old. You keep reducing her down. You make her small and you make the problem big. And then later, she's not prey either. She's Kinsey Martin. She's a person. You may have only seen her cry once, but I've seen her cry more times than I can count. Damn, Ashley. Coming in here swinging for her buddy. That's this right. is this. I mean, this is endearing. It's wonderful. Um, you you see that Houndstooth has has struck a nerve, and we know that Kenzie and Ashley are probably the closest. Like Ashley, Kenzie's the closest to Ashley at least. Um, but I think more than that, it's not just. It's not to me. It's not just that he's insulting Kenzie. It's that being reduced to a thing is what people do to Ashley. We've seen this happen. Um, she is a damsel of distress clone. She's a clone of a monster and nothing more. And that is what people have reduced her to. So you can see especially why this would rub her the wrong way as well. 
Yeah. No, great, great point. I didn't, I didn't, that didn't occur to me, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly her, her problem here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she storms off. Houndstooth makes a good analogy about how food addiction and people addiction are both really hard because you can't just quit either of them. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, up, but at the same time yeah, also right. saying that you should isolate her. That's like, right. <laughs> so the food addiction guy is just, okay, just no more food for you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I mean, Houndstooth actually makes this out to be like a, a, a losing battle. Like, yeah. Like you're, you're not going to, it sounds like you guys aren't going to be able to handle it. Sorry. Right. Um, Which is like, and it's, it's tough because I think we're in this position and I think we're in the same position that, that Victoria is. And I think that's an intentional cause we're in her head. Um, but we both take everything Houndstooth is saying to heart about Kenzie while fully being like, fuck yeah, Ashley, you tell him. Yeah. Cause he is, he's reducing her to a thing, a problem. Um, uh, uh, like, the idea, I think he says, like, we got to get her back to being normal. It's like, wh- yeah. what What the fuck does that mean? This is normal yeah. for her. Right. And 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 we want to root for Kinsey because as, as much as we've right. talked on this podcast about being a little, like, creeped out by some of her behavior, um, I think that that bit where you relate to her is also there. And yeah. you want you want to see her get over the things that are holding her back and harming her. Yeah, my concern regarding Kenzie is no longer concern for what she's going to do to the other people, but I'm just concerned for her well-being. I want her to be okay. Um and I don't I don't know if this group is the best way to do that, but we will we will see. Yeah, right. I like how this conversation ends with um Tristan, I believe, saying fuck the agents. And then Houndstooth replies, powers and agents don't even really play into this. If you took away her powers and the influence of her agent today, I give you all the same warnings tomorrow. I really like this a lot. Um, we talked a lot during the, the latter half of Worm about how much was the shard and how much was the person and this kind of um, this idea that I personally like caught myself sometimes pushing too much of the blame for actions off on on the shard, the passenger sometimes and and how much. I was really hesitant to do that once I realized I was doing it, like to just blame things on the shark, to blame things on external factors. I think doing so removes agency from characters. It makes them passive to the events that, that are happening to them because it's just the shard's fault. Um, and Houndstooth here believes that her shard did it is not a sufficient excuse for Kenzie's behavior. That sometimes the problems that people have are just people problems. And I think that I like, I think that is much more meaty and interesting to me than it's just her shard. Yeah, I, I agree that it's more interesting and also kind of more useful in, in the story world to, to say like, no, we're going to address this as if it's just Kinsey. Um, yeah. Then you can actually have some hope of making progress on it. Yeah. So back at the headquarters, Victoria gently probes Kinsey on the basis of the information that they just learned. And Kinsey seems pretty convincing in her portrayal of someone who's better or at least trying to be better, which just makes me even more suspicious. Yeah. And this is the part where you realize that, like, we talked about their whole idea. Their whole idea, this whole plan was hinging on Kenzie. On mm-hmm. She was the most important member of this plan. And Houndstooth basically tells her, 
that's a really that's a really bad idea. <laughs> like you are feeding into the very thing that uh, leads to her problem because you are you are holding her up as the most important member of the team, which only encourages her to do even better to win your affection more. Um, she it's it's a feedback loop here, and we have Tristan saying Kenzie's made real progress. We have her her saying that that she she's gotten better. She's okay now, but how how much longer do you have to like be tempted by your old behavior before you just kind of backslide yeah yeah and and victoria isn't like oh okay yeah i will internalize this and we will make sure immediately to give kinsey less work like no they just go and immediately they put kinsey to work yep yeah um yeah so basically this chapter wraps up with uh her voice small and quiet. I heard Kenzie remark, at least I get to see him on camera. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Kenzie, no. And then we segue right into 4.5. And the, the so so I, I just want to point out the, inter, the interlude opened with Rain watching through another's eyes. The last chapter began with Victoria being watched by someone. And now this chapter begins with Victoria watching others. So there's definitely this motif. Yeah, that's motif a really repeating here. It's a really good catch. Yeah. Thanks. So, so she checks on Tristan, who is sketching out a floor plan for the HQ, including all the essentials like mini fridge and sign. Yeah, you gotta have your priorities. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was part of a corporate team, Scott. Yeah, you gotta have that sign. Yeah. And mini so, fridge. Yeah. So she and Tristan discuss their strength. He explains that he lifts and trains pretty hard and gets a 30 to 60% bonus to strength and fitness. Uh, Byron is similarly resistant to temperature extremes. Victoria explains that she, uh, she also works out so she can use her body without having to rely on her force field. And she actually says out loud, I don't have the control to do something more delicate. I, I honestly don't trust my power a lot of the time. Yeah, and I mentioned this on uh, my live tweet, Matt, but this is really, I think, the first time we see Victoria like publicly mention how concerned she is with her power to to uh, anyone, maybe. And I think that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And Sveta clocks it, too, because the next thing we see is that Sveta comes over and stands next to her, and the excuse is she's looking at the board, but it was right after she uttered this thing about how she didn't trust her power. So Sveta is aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that Sveta has kind of fallen off the radar and then the text itself has Victoria say, Hey, you can call fall off the radar. Yeah. yeah. Let's catch up. Um, yeah. So anyway, Tristan at this point reigns himself in from criticizing Byron. And the first time I read this, I took it as Tristan making progress in being fair minded. But then I remember that Byron sort of has a gun pointed at his head. So, <laughs> It can be both, Matt. You yeah. Have, you have so little faith in Tristan. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's, I think it's just the, the recurring paranoia that this book engenders where you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice, except it could also be sinister. Yeah. Um, I, I think he is doing a bit of a mea culpa here, though. Um, he, he admits that he wasn't always fair. Um, he didn't always handle things in the best ways when it came to him and his brother. Um, he's vague, of course, because we don't mm -hmm. fully understand the 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 depth of that interaction yet. But, but I like this, this, this like being fair is very hard in normal life. It's probably even harder when you're splitting time in a body. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, yeah, so she checks on she checks in on Kinsey, who is passively monitoring the area. She's working on her costume, which is a holographic shell that fits over her head. She and Victoria collaborate on the design. Yeah, and it's so interesting here because we have this back and forth contrast now. We've got houndstooth word, words in the back of our head, and we see Kenzie literally like tagging and cataloging people with her cameras. Mm-hmm. Like she's just like giving them names, and every t- like her facial recognition program like tags them, catalogs them, marks them, and then puts them in a database somewhere. And that's troubling. Um, but then she's also making the head, the helmet, and it has little spots for her hair buns and you're like that's adorable (laughs) and like it's literally what houndstooth was talking about like almost exactly yeah and i also like that it's simultaneously adorable but also borderline looks like a spider yes that is true it has like too many eyes so it's like it's like perfect kinsey metaphor that it's adorable but also you're a little bit unconsciously unnerved yeah and too many eyes who do we know that had too many eyes interesting i like that yes uh, yeah, so Ken- the issue of Kinsey hiding her true appearance comes up. Kinsey insists that she's not devious and wouldn't hide things or lie like that, and Victoria seems to take her word for it. It's interesting because I kind of also take her word for it, despite the fact that Houndstooth just sketched out a pathology that would totally lie about something like this. Yeah, I'm with you, and I don't understand why. And I think <laughs> we're just being manipulated <laughs> because, like, it's this, like, Houndstooth laid it out for us. It's like, we would warn them. They wouldn't listen. It's because she's so eager and young and useful. And so you don't listen to his warnings. And I think that's what's happening here. Like, Kenzie says she's not devious, but we have this whole thing where she fooled them all with her homework. Yeah. And yet I still believe her. I believe that she's telling the truth here. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where, like, you don't think of yourself as being devious when you're doing it for a good reason. Right. You know? Right. And in her mind, it's all a good reason. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, uh, so again, we are with her. And in the middle of the scene, Kenzie gets concerned because she's averaged Ashley's walk time from the train and she's a minute and 13 seconds late. And she's starting. So we're like, no, guys, Kenzie's fine. She's yeah. fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> OK. Yeah. Yeah. She's made so much progress, Matt. Yeah. No, that's fun. So Kenzie says she wants to be more like Victoria, a true blue hero. And Victoria opens up a bit. She says, I don't know if I am. I'm pretty angry about things. I'm really concerned about a lot of things. Negative emotions drive an awful lot of what I do. Yeah, which is which is very much admitting that that warrior monk thing is not her. Um, I, I like that she calls back to Presley and that interaction on the train. Because she says, on the train, Presley wanted Victoria to be the image of the hero, to be the idol, and not the person. And she gladly played that role for her. But here, when when she interprets Kenzie as wanting the same thing, she wants Victoria to be the idol, um, she instead chooses to make herself more human. She does not hold herself up as the idol. She specifically reaches out to her and says, no, I am, uh, I messed up too. And I think that shows that whether or not Victoria believes everything that Houndstooth has saying, that she is slightly changing her behavior around Kenzie based off that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as just being a little bit less of the coach and a little bit more of the teammate being being willing to be vulnerable with Kenzie in that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Ashley arrives and promptly refers to Houndstooth as a cretin 
which instantly puts Kenzie's back up. Kenzie threatens her with going to war. And we actually have, it culminates to the point of, uh, Kenzie leapt forward, swatting aside Sveta's hand and dodging mine. She grabbed the front of Ashley's top and hauled it down, making Ashley bend down. Ashley's hand moved, and Tristan grabbed her wrist, stopping it from going wherever it was going to go. He grabbed Kenzie with his other hand, ready to pull her away if need be. Um, all good here, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Kenzie has made such progress. She's doing yeah. so good now. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> picking fights with the shotgun hands lady. Mm-hmm. I will go like that, that those words are purposeful. She's going, she wants to go to war. I will go to war with you. Yeah. I will make hundreds of drones that will attack <laughs> you. Like this is such an extreme. Um, it's so, so deeply troubling. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking too. And uh, so, so first of all, there's the fact that Ashley backs down from this just, flat out like yeah. is, is a huge mark in the Ashley actually cares about Kenzie and is learning learning to control herself a bit column yeah I completely agree N- not only yeah. is this the first time we've seen Ashley back down so far um but but Kenzie made it physical too like this wasn't just yeah. someone being mean to her she made it physical and yeah Ashley is is a uh, is there's more going on there than she she puts forth absolutely yeah. it, it's always harder to calm down when somebody lays hands on you yeah and then the heartbreaking bit is that like Kenzie's obviously lost her temper here, but kind of once she realizes that she's gone too far, she, she like does the thing where like, she's like tries to smile and the smile falters and she, she's just like, you see that she, you see that this is actually just out of desperation. Yeah. Um, and like her whole worldview is, is hinging on Ashley not being mean to Poundstooth. So. Right. Because in the middle of this, like he's calling on the phone and yeah. she's like begging her, please, please don't say anything, please. Like don't, you could ruin this. Like I'm getting to work with him again, even indirectly. Please don't ruin this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So houndstooth team, houndstooth's team is about to make their first uh, probing patrol and they call in for a briefing. We learn about kitchen sink, uh, a junk telekinetic and his partner (laughs) hook line who controls a long vulnerable cable Um, (laughs) hook line and sink. The female voice said, oh, my God, I love this lady so much. I hope we get to meet her. She's the best. Yeah. So they go over their cover story and then they move in. Kenzie is obviously barely containing her joy that Houndstooth appreciated the intel. Yeah. um, For her sake, I hope Houndstooth never stops appreciating the intel. Yeah. It's going to be a bad day. Yeah. So Sveta and Victoria leave together to be ready in case uh, extraction is needed. The two of them fly slash octopus crawl uh i think you mean spider-man uh match. yeah you're the, spider-man's across the city accurate, yeah. that's exactly what she does yeah spider-man's across the city to a vantage point and they talk about the team and how obviously barely under control things are yeah. they talk about each other uh they talk about the first they talk about each of the team members in detail not really in a way that i can summarize easily but it's very useful for us as readers to be both reminded of details and to get up to speed on Victoria's awareness of those details and establish an explicit shared awareness with Sveta. Yeah. Um, we've been getting like these hints and glimpses of like this unspoken understanding between Sveta and Victoria about these guys mm-hmm. for a few chapters now. Uh, and this is the first time we get to see it all kind of come out into the open. 
and I think more importantly is for Sveta here, we see vulnerability. We see that while she might be okay on some fronts, she's not okay on the other. The whole the whole idea with um, she doesn't need the coach. She needs the friend. She needs someone to take her shopping. She this is this is a chink in Sveta's unyielding optimism that she's not okay. She's good at doing stuff, but she still needs help in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we kind of like, I've, that's, that's been nagging at the back of my mind all this time because when we left Sveta and worm, she was so poorly off. And, and the fact that she's keeping things together as well as she is now does not mean that she's better. It means that she's really good at employing her coping strategies. Yep. Yep. Uh, I really, this conversation, Matt is like really great because like structurally while this entire conversation is going off, um, in the background or, or the foreground, depending on how you read it, um, Houndstooth and his team are entering hollow point. So we have these people that the first, the first big part of their plan to take down hollow point is being executed and we don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of tension here. And while we are dealing with this external tension, we're also having our two characters talk about how precarious and tense things are within their own team and these two different conflicts are are juxtaposed against each other and it just kind of ratchets things up and you're just like oh my god this is gonna go bad real quick quick what is gonna happen oh god yeah 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 that's fun yeah um yeah so speaking of um Speaking of Victoria, she says, uh, my entire hero career before the hospital and the years leading up to that career were fantasy or exercise in me having powers and being a hero. And I'm not sure I was ever heroic about it. I just see that past me as a holy as wholly motivated in selfishness, ego, pride and a drive to be celebrated. And I pulled this out because it feels like Victoria is very gradually working her way through this thought process that began on the train. um, But she doesn't quite know like where it's going to end up it's almost like she's systematically undermining her own uh prior justifications for how she behaved and and trying to find new ones yeah i think i think that's a i think that's a great read actually um because she she is looking for new purpose and and she she wants to be a hero still but she's looking for a the identity as a new type of hero and she's taken upon herself to be the coach and that's the type of hero she's trying to be but maybe she's realizing that the ways in which she is has the expertise in this area are not necessarily good ones and she's Mm -hmm. struggling with how to direct them in in better different ways and that's kind of knocking at her this this image she's put up of herself this this act of poise Mm -hmm. yeah i like that um and then and then uh she says to sveta so so basically um she's telling sveta that that sveta serves a very important role in the team and she says it's true i said you're the team's mom um oh no sveta said that's so much worse than what i thought you were going to say i thought you were going to call me the team's heart like weld does I can't be a mother. No. Uh, so, so first thing you notice is that Weld is, is bringing up his old, uh, you're the team's heart shtick, which is, yeah. which as we know is extremely effective. Um, mm-hmm. 
but also, you know, you're the mom, Victoria <laughs> said to the woman who could never bear children. Oh, uh, yeah. That's uh, not very sensitive there. I mean, do you think Sveta, that's what Sveta's uh, very uh, harsh reaction to the sentences? I don't know. I mean, she 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 brings it up again later, like it's still on her mind. Um, that definitely is one interpretation. I, th- I think, although yeah. that, that's I don't think the, that's simply it. That, I agree because that's not kind of how she's not saying she's, she, she's saying like, I'm not a mom. She's rejecting that as an identity. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Uh, I, I have a feeling that that is not a, that that beat is not going to be dropped there. No, I, you're absolutely right. I, I, I agree with that. So yeah, they're interrupted as the hollow point villains confront the Kings of the Hill. There, there's a pretty fun standoff. I love the banter between Prancer and Houndstooth. Houndstooth manages to seem cool as a cucumber, but still backs down without losing any face. Um, yep. And speaking of little mysteries that we're learning about, uh, what I'm wondering, Kitchen Sink said, could this have to do with the truck of, shut up this very second, Prancer said. Ooh, truck of what, Matt? Truck of, truck of what? What's in the truck? What's in the truck? What's in the truck? Yeah, so, I mean, but this is this is the first real. Um, this in the next event is the first real hint that Hollow Point might not be this beautiful villain utopia that they're holding it up to be. Yeah, right. Because here we have Hookline and, sink, and Kitchen Sink uh, head off by themselves against Prancer's orders to harass the Kings of the Hill. And on Tristan's go, Victoria and Sveta absolutely clown these two villains. <laughs> yeah, they do. Victoria like mostly beats the hell out of Kitchen Sink without even using her force field. And Sveta pulls Hookline under a car and then just kind of keeps him there. Yeah, it's very effective. I mean, like I was ready for this to be a full like knockdown drag out fight. And then it's just kind of over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just completely in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the two women fly away as Love Lost and Moose show up to reinforce. Uh, and it, and, it, and uh, with Love Lost, her claw went to her mask. I had just about no interest in seeing what she could do. Um, Which so she, I, she could I, eat. I think we know it's a screaming type power, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's like an emotion affecting scream. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, lends credence to the idea that she was one of the people trapped in the mall. We do see a woman in the mall scream very loudly mm-hmm. before they are trampled. Um, I don't know if that's love loss or not, but that does happen. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, at least it may, at least it uh, makes you think of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so that wraps up um, this section four dot six. And, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty great chunk of, of three chapters here. Yeah. I'm ve- I think we're getting to the point where next week we might be wrapping up the arc and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, me too. All right. So let's do a, a quick little name game. Um, All right. so, so rather than talk too specifically about any one, I just wanted to kind of like highlight this pattern yet again, that we have like hook, line and sink bird brain and brain dead prancer and velvet, the speed runners whose names all match. Um, like everybody wants to belong. People are downright eager to subsume their identities into group identity. And uh, I, I think like to, to me, I sort of interpret that maybe as like a reaction to this enormous trauma that this whole planet of people was subjected to. And, and they're they're just trying to like latch on to other people yeah. and defining themselves in terms of being in, in, in a group to the extent that their individual cape name is is relative to others. I think you're right. And I think one thing we haven't heard a lot about is rogue capes in this world um how many of them are there do i mean like it it seems like we're teaming up a lot and 
I I don't I can't I can't think of any specific rogue capes we know that are operating right now. Yeah, me um, neither. So yeah, I think that's a, a good catch, and I think that's that is what these names are showing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then all right, so discussion question for this week. Knowing what we know now, which member of the Misfit Toys is the most danger to themselves and others, and why? Ooh, I'm very interested to see what people say about this one. I think there's going to be a lot of different answers. Yeah, me too. I, I, I'm. That's a great question. And we will save ours, I think, for yeah. for next week as well. I think I can think of a case for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. Remember that you guys are all a part of this show now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, that's D-A-L-Y, and Matt's is at mordenamail. Yeah, and if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much else uh, anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, over on the main feed, Matt, Michael, and I talked about the Cloverfield Paradox and the Cloverfield Universe. We talked about all the movies. Um, there's a spoiler section and a non-spoiler section, so if you have not watched that movie yet, you can still... Listen to us talk about it. It was a, a pretty good, pretty good conversation, Matt. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Uh, yeah, if, if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon uh, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. Yeah, and if you cannot afford to make a donation right now, that's absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to iTunes and leaving us a rating and a review. Each and every review does really help us get noticed. It, it is so helpful. I appreciate everyone that takes the time to do it. So please, guys, keep that up. You can be like Bueno Excelente, who gives us five stars and says, The two hosts do a great job of breaking the story down into themes and beats and tropes. I've learned more from them about how stories are constructed than I did in my entire education. It's consistently entertaining, but sometimes maddening. The text does not say what I want it to say, and realizing that has emotional consequences. Be prepared. I guess you could say, Matt, that this review was pretty bueno, excelente. Uh (laughs) No, thank you so much for the kind words. And I'm sorry we were maddening sometime. Um, I interpret interpret the text the way you want it to that's what i say this this is our interpretation we believe it is the right one but it is subjective of course yeah Um, i would i would hate for our interpretation to hurt your enjoyment of the book because even though we think things differently than you might we still all agree that this is a wonderful story yeah and as always i have to mention that my first time i read the story my interpretation was much more in line with sort of the average interpretation of Yay, badass Taylor. (laughs) Uh, All right, that's it for our show this week. Next week, we continue and possibly conclude Arc 4. We'll have to find out.
I never said she wasn't a badass, Matt. <laughs> Just a deeply troubling badass. Yeah. Well, it's it's yay versus yay. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. 